Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by Dr. Nicholas Deep, otologist and neurotologist, and we'll be discussing acute mastoiditis. Dr. Deep, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so today we're talking about acute mastoiditis, otherwise known as, quote unquote, the hot mastoid. Uh, so to start, do you mind just telling us a little bit about uh, uh, how do these patients present uh, with a hot mastoid? Sure. So patients with mastoiditis can present in a variety of different ways, really depending on how progressed the infection is and the structures that are involved. Mastoiditis results from a acute otitis media. And so that's because the mastoid air cells and the middle ear air spaces are all continuous via the additus at antrum. So patients with early mastoid infections may have minimal or no symptoms, or they may just have the symptoms of their acute otitis media, which is typically ear pain, hearing loss, and sometimes purulent ear drainage. But as that infection brews or it goes untreated, or if it's resistant to the treatment it's getting, the pus under pressure within the mastoid cavity starts to break down the thin bony septae, and this can result in what's called coalescent mastoiditis. And eventually that pus can dissect into the contiguous tissues, resulting in a variety of intratemporal, extratemporal, or intracranial complications, really depending on which direction the infection spreads to. So the spectrum of symptoms in patients with acute mastoiditis really ranges from being asymptomatic with spontaneous resolution to a progressive disease with life-threatening complications. Uh, fortunately, with the adoption of vaccines, the overall incidence of temporal bone infections like this has really decreased, but uh, they nonetheless still do occur, and it can still lead to extensive morbidity and mortality. And as you kind of discussed that, uh, you talked about uh, uncomplicated mastoiditis or even just a middle ear effusion or infection. And with that being said, can, can you maybe define a little bit more about what is acute mastoiditis when we're talking about it in a more severe kind of way? Definitely. That's a good question. And, you know, when we say mastoiditis, we mean a separative infection of the mastoid air cells. And I think it's really important uh, that we differentiate this from what sometimes radiologists will call mastoiditis on their report, uh, which is almost any time a patient has fluid within their mastoid. But in reality, the diagnosis of mastoiditis really needs to be made in conjunction with the clinical symptoms. You know, a non-infected serous effusion of the mastoid really isn't considered mastoiditis by our definition. So the classic presentation of a patient with the so-called hot, hot mastoid would be a child, uh, oftentimes um, under four years of age, who presents, has a history of acute otitis media that doesn't get better with, uh, with treatment. And um, after a couple of weeks, it's just getting worse and worse. They present with a bulging ear. It's proptotic. A CT scan might be done, and if it is, it oftentimes shows coalescent mastoiditis. Um, but what's what's important is that these patients typically don't have a long history of recurrent ear infections or chronic otitis media, uh, but instead they just had an acute otitis media just in the preceding weeks uh, and may or may not have been on some antibiotics recently, but it's not a lifelong issue for them in terms of recurrent issues. Uh, and this is because these patients have otherwise normal mastoid development, uh, for their age, and they have numerous small pneumatic spaces and a well-developed air system. And so these are the patients that are more prone to having a acute uh, uh, suppurative, you know, mastoiditis. And it's in contrast to patients with chronic ear disease, 
in whom they rarely have uh, coalescent mastoiditis because their mastoid air systems are poorly pneumatized. There's very few cells. Uh, so patients with chronic otitis media, you know, with or without cholesteatoma, uh, can have a chronic mastoiditis, and that's typically defined as uh, lasting longer than three weeks. But this kind of infection is more indolent, and the damage that occurs is more slowly, and it occurs through bone erosion or direct extension uh, from a cholesteatoma, for example, um, as opposed to an infection that escalates abruptly over a few days and uh, an abscess that explodes out of the confines of the mastoid cavity uh, into an adjacent tissue, like we see with uh, acute mastoiditis in the setting of an acute otitis media. So I think it is worth pointing out that there is a difference, um, and it's important to differentiate mastoiditis in the setting uh, of an acute otitis media versus a chronic otitis media, because the clinical presentations can differ. Yeah, and when you see these patients uh, with acute mastoiditis, what are some of the questions that you're asking the patient? Or as you said, a lot of these happen in younger kids. What types of questions are you asking the parents? So, you know, first and foremost, you know, I want to establish, you know, when was this patient's ear last free of any disease? You know, when was it perfectly normal because this is going to help us differentiate if this patient has an acute otitis media versus some chronic otitis media. Again, the bacteria involved, the medical treatments, the potential complications that can ensue or may or may not require surgery are different between those presentations. So I think it's important to clarify that point. You know, I ask when the ear was previously evaluated, are there any objective evidence that the ear was normal, such as a tympanogram or imaging that uh, an imaging study that included the ears? Is there a history of treatment for otitis media? And if so, how often are they getting infections? Uh, what are the types of treatment that they're getting? Have they ever had tubes? Are there any, uh, is there any sinus disease or craniofacial abnormalities that may predispose to chronic otitis media? Uh, in pediatric patients with complicated mastoiditis, uh, less than 40% have a history of previous otitis media and 50% uh, present um, having had received some antibiotics before admission. Uh, so again, the majority of patients haven't had a history of recurrent otitis media, um, and uh, this sort of underscores the, uh, uh, the potential complications that can occur in patients with acute otitis media. Uh, I also ask about the order of the appearance and the magnitude of the symptoms they're having. I always ask the same seven cardinal ear symptoms to all the patients that I see, you know, those being hearing loss, tinnitus, vertigo, ear pressure, ear pain, drainage, and facial weakness. And really for any of these symptoms, I want to know about the onset, the duration, the progression, the character, and the general temporal nature. I think probably one of the strongest historical uh, suggestions of a coalescent mastoiditis is just the chronology of the infection. You, know, you have purulent drainage or significant uh, otalgia that persists for two weeks, and then it starts to get better, but then recurs 10 to 14 days later uh, and sort of significantly worsens. Uh, you get that double worsening effect, and I think that's classic for uh, patients who are starting to have uh, development of a coalescent mastoiditis. And in general, just children with coalescent mastoiditis look sicker. They have more signs of toxicity or higher temperature with more persistent fevers uh, compared to patients uh, with uncomplicated acute otitis media. And what are you looking for on physical exam when you see these kids? On examination, it's important to do a complete head and neck exam as well as a neurologic exam to evaluate the cranial nerves. Uh, in any of these patients uh, suspected of having a complicated uh, otitis media. On uh, otoscopy, you can see signs of infection, such as an erythematous bulging or opaque tympanic membrane. It could show signs of perforation with uh, purulent odorrhea, granulation tissue, or even signs of cholesteatoma. 
Oftentimes, EAC can be narrowed, which precludes the view of the TM, or you might see some sagging of the posterior superior canal wall. Uh, patients can have tenderness or inflammation over the mastoid process. Oftentimes, uh, you know, in those patients with a subperiosteal abscess, they'll have um, be quite palpable and tender. Uh, you can see a postericular edema, also due to thrombosis of the emissary veins. That's something called Greisinger sign. Some patients will have a proptotic ear. Um, in those patients with, um, with uh, subperiosteal abscess, will have a proptotic ear with lateral displacement of the auricle and loss of that postericular skin crease. Uh, it's important to check the soft tissues above or even anterior to the auricle because you can get an abscess formation uh, underneath the temporalis muscle uh, that involves the, uh, the air cells in the root of the zygoma. It's called a Luke's abscess. Fever is important to elicit. Um, this is also something to, to ask about in the history if they've had this history of, uh, of fevers, particularly these high spiking fevers over 103 degrees um, that may be indicative of a potential sigmoid sinus thrombophlebitis. And then again, any other systemic toxicities, you know, lethargy, malaise, irritability, poor feeding or, di uh, or diarrhea, anything that would suggest any systemic toxicity. From the cranial nerve perspective, it's important to uh, look into, uh, you know, do a complete cranial nerve examination, check for complications of mastoiditis uh, that could result from the spread of the infection uh, into the uh, intracranial space. It's important to also confirm good facial movement. You know, facial nerve paralysis is not an uncommon finding uh, in acute mastoiditis, especially because there's some bony, natural bony dehiscences uh, within the middle ear of the facial nerve, which puts it at risk. And oftentimes, uh, the facial paralysis in kids uh, can be partial, so it's important to do a, uh, to, to check all the divisions of the facial nerve. Uh, check the extraocular movements. Uh, petrous apicitis, which is an extension of the of, the, uh, of acute mastoiditis into the petrous apex air cells, uh, can present with uh, isolated abducens nerve palsy, which is a part of what's called Gradenigo's triad: otitis media, retroorbital pain, and abducens nerve palsy. And so th that can also be elicited on examination. And of course, signs of intracranial involvement, uh, seizures, uh, persistent uh, uh, and severe earaches, uh, headaches, nausea, vomiting, focal neurologic deficits, uh, signs of increased intracranial pressure, papilledema, um, checking for nuchal rigidity uh, is important uh, if uh, you suspect meningitis or certainly any evidence of altered mental status. These uh, more neurologic signs you know, it's critical to promptly uh, identify, diagnose, and uh, begin empiric IV antibiotics uh, for these, as well as oftentimes getting a neurosurgery consult as well. And before we move on to pathophysiology, can you tell us a little bit about the epidemiology of this? What uh, predisposes kids to this? How common is it? Yeah, so the epidemiology of acute mastoiditis really parallels that of acute otitis media with the highest incidence being in children and young adults. About 60 to 80% of complications of acute otitis media occurs within the first two decades of life. And in children, about 50% occur in those less than four years of age. Uh, some studies have shown that males tend to be slightly more affected. And it's estimated that the incidence of mastoiditis severe enough warranting surgery is about 10 per 100,000 people in a population. But this may be higher in underdeveloped countries. But overall, though, there's been a declining incidence in the complications of uh, temporal bone infections due to the near universal adoption of the pneumococcal conjugate vaccines, as well as just more routine availability of antibiotics. So, and 
Fortunately, there's also been a dramatic reduction in the incidence of meningitis caused by acute and chronic otitis media. And it wasn't only about three decades ago where H influenza and, and strep pneumonia caused nearly all the cases of otogenic meningitis. And after the H influenza type B vaccine became part of the routine uh, pediatric immunizations in the United States in the 1980s, H influenza meningitis dramatically decreased and it's now almost disappeared. And likewise, uh, today with Prevnar 13 uh, pneumococcal vaccine, uh, known as PCV13, uh, which is also now part of the routine pediatric immunizations in the United States, we're similarly witnessing a reduction in otogenic streptococcal meningitis uh, in those patients who are most susceptible, those who are under two years of age. So that, that, that's been a great achievement. So next we'll move on to pathophysiology. We already talked about what makes mastoiditis, a surgical mastoiditis, or a quote-unquote hot mastoid with the coalescence in the mastoid bone. But can you tell us a little bit about what precedes uh, an acute mastoiditis or uh, what infections are involved in this disease process? Sure. It's a good question. So acute mastoiditis, as I mentioned, results from an acute otitis media. And this is because the middle ear and mastoid ear spaces are continuous. So the adjacent mastoid mucosa becomes inflamed, um, as well as the, uh, the middle ear mucosa. And there's increased pressure uh, that arises, which gradually erodes that thin bony septae between the air cells. And this is what results in that uh, coalescent mastoiditis. And as that pressure uh, continues to grow within the mastoid cavity, it can then uh, extend beyond the confines of the mastoid and so in the, in the presence of intense inflammation and infection, you can get phlebitis and periphlebitis, uh, and you can get commonly a spread of infection to the meninges or the sigmoid sinus, the cerebellum, the temporal lobe, uh, the labyrinth, or even the facial nerve. There's three main pathways of spread of acute otitis media or acute mastoiditis, and these are hematogenous spread, uh, direct extension through a bone, uh, through bony erosion or through preformed pathways, and lastly, thrombophlebitis of local perforating diploic veins. So for meningitis, for example, this is an example of hematogenous spread. Meningitis usually occurs uh, mainly as a result of acute otitis media, as opposed to chronic uh, suppurative otitis media, because there's overall less vascularity in the mastoid in patients with chronic otitis media. Direct extension, for example, uh, can occur, um, can result in a variety of complications, including uh, Postricular abscesses, basal abscess, sigmoid sinus thrombosis, an epidural abscess, subdural empyema, facial nerve paralysis, among others that we can discuss. Direct extension can also occur through uh, preformed pathways. So these are patients that have an enlarged vestibular aqueduct or Mandini deformity. Any patient with prior temporal bone fracture or prior temporal bone surgery are thought to have these, uh, you know, quote unquote preformed pathways because it puts them at greater risk for meningitis or a subdural effusion or a uh, suppurative labyrinthitis because there's now this, there's a pathway that's connecting the meninges or the labyrinth with the middle ear and the mastoid cavities where this infection is brewing. And lastly, uh, patients with chronic mastoiditis uh, in the setting of chronic otitis media, these patients tend to have complications not so much due to hematogenous spread, uh, but rather through local bone destruction or granulation formation or from an erosive uh, cholesteatoma. So in these cases, the bacteria gain access to the involved structures by direct extension or by infecting and propagating along veins that lead to the mastoid or adjacent structures. And it's also worth noting that the bacteria in chronic otitis media 
uh, is distinct from that of uh, acute. So in acute mastoiditis or acute otitis media, um, they share similar pathogens, the most common being strep pneumonia, strep pyogenes, uh, staph aureus, and H influenza. Whereas in chronic uh, mastoiditis, it's more likely to harbor multiple uh, polymicrobial species, oftentimes anaerobic as well as aerobic. Uh, Pseudomonas often is uh, recovered in, in these cases of chronic mastoiditis um, as opposed to acute. And next, we often talk about the natural history of a disease. And here, it's really, what are the complications of untreated mastoiditis? We've talked a bit about it already, but could you just run through a list of what the scope is in terms of complications, including the different types of abscesses and uh, where those abscesses are located? Definitely. So in most case series, the rate of complications for untreated acute mastoiditis is approximately 15 to 30%, but the range is quite variable. Intracranial complications do account for a considerable proportion of those. And in general, I think of complications as uh, broadly being categorized as either extracranial or intracranial. Uh, so starting with extracranial, you know, the most common extracranial complication, particularly in children, is the uh, postericular subperiosteal abscess. This is an infection that extends from the mastoid to the subperiosteal space that occurs through direct extension and bone destruction. And interestingly, in very young children, that infection may spread through the tiny pits in the temporal bone in the cribriform area uh, of the mastoid just near the, just behind the spina henle, because in newborns, these channels are actually open and it provides a direct conduit for the infection uh, from the mastoid directly to the subperiosteal space. Um, and in older uh, patients, those close, but eventually the uh, pus just erodes to the bone and it breaks out of the mastoid cortex laterally. These patients manifest with erythema, fluctuance, uh, tender mass overlying the mastoid bone, and a proptotic uh, uh, external ear. So, uh, but if that pus, instead of uh, extending laterally, extends inferiorly uh, to the mastoid tip, they can get a bezold abscess, which can form, uh, which is basically a neck abscess located beneath the sternocleidomastoid muscle and the digastric muscle. And imaging will show the abscess tracking along the SCM sheath. And these patients present with swelling and tenderness below the mastoid process and under the sternocleidomastoid muscle. A bezold abscess occurs more commonly in older children uh, where the mastoid is well pneumatized and it's extended to the mastoid tip. Uh, whereas uh, in children, the mastoid tip is not fully developed. And so you don't quite have the same kind of picture. It's also in younger children, it's more likely that they'll have an inflamed lymph node to be the source of a, a tender neck mass in the setting of acute otitis media, as opposed to a, um, an abscess. Uh, but if there's any uncertainty, a CT scan is uh, adequate to distinguish between these two. Now, pus can also dissect posteriorly into the occipital bone resulting in osteomyelitis of the calvaria. It's called a satelli abscess. We mentioned uh, the Luke's abscess before where it could extend uh, subtemporal and sort of tracks along the zygomatic root um, due to separation of the zygomatic hair cells there. Um, it could also involve the labyrinth causing a separative labyrinthitis. And this is due to weaken, uh, weakened areas of the oval or round window membrane, uh, which allows bacteria to seed. And these patients unfortunately have uh, permanent sensory neural hearing loss, tinnitus, and get nauseous and vomiting and have vertigo and nystagmus. Uh, it's more common in, in patients with congenital labyrinthine deformities, such as mundemes or enlarged vestibular aqueduct, because again, they have these preformed pathways 
but um, it can also occur in patients uh, with just who've had this prior surgery. The vertigo in these patients is spontaneous. It lasts for hours and the nystagmus is brisk and it's directed toward the opposite ear. Patients can also get facial paralysis from spread of the infection um, involving the facial nerve canal. Again, it's often uh, implicating the tympanic segment of the facial nerve where it's most vulnerable. Facial weakness in these cases rarely lasts longer than three weeks, um, even when it's complete uh, at presentation. So it's the overall, the, the facial nerve outcomes is quite good, uh, particularly if it's uh, appropriately treated. And lastly, um, in terms of extracranial complications, patients can have what's called a petrous apicitis, uh, which you can think of as essentially mastoiditis that occurs in the petrous apex. Uh, so this is rare, and it's mainly because uh, most patients don't have a well-aerated petrous apex uh, airspace. It's usually underdeveloped, it's sclerotic, uh, or contains marrow with little luminization. Uh, and in those cases, the uh, spread of infection uh, is unlikely. But if it is well aerated and pneumatized, um, uh, they can be susceptible to having uh, petrous apicitis. It can sometimes be tricky. Uh, some patients, since the pneumatization patterns, the petrous apex can be asymmetric between each side. Uh, it can be challenging if one side is well pneumatized and the other side uh, is, is not, or if it's small and sclerotic, uh, because the side that's small and sclerotic and contains marrow, it could be interpreted as being pneumatized but opacified by fluid or infection. Uh, but the MRI is typically useful in these cases to discern the difference between marrow versus mucus. Uh, but regardless, patients with uh, petrous apicitis, uh, again, classically present with um, what's known as Gradenigo's triad of uh, retroorbital pain, abducens nerve palsy, and otorrhea. Um, although uh, Today, very few people actually present with that full triad, uh, again, because we're treating these with antibiotics before it progresses to that severity. Um, the reason they get this uh, is due to irritation of, uh, of the uh, trigeminal ganglion in Meckel's cave. And the reason they get the, the sixth nerve palsy, or abducens nerve palsy, is because the sixth nerve travels through Dorella's canal, which abuts the petrous apex, so it puts it at risk there. Now, uh, that covers the extracranial complications, but if the pus dissects medially uh, into the intracranial compartment, it can uh, result in other complications. So it can result in meningitis, which is often, again, due to hematogenous spread in the setting of an acute otitis media. Um, patients can have an epidural or a subdural abscess uh, or uh, a temporal lobe or cerebellar intraparenchymal brain abscess. Uh, it's probably going to be the most uh, or the highest cause for uh, mortality in patients. Um, and patients can also get lateral sinus thrombosis, meaning the sigmoid or the transverse sinus are thrombosed. And this happens because the abscess uh, in the mastoid is right up next to the sigmoid sinus that exerts pressure on the sinus, which then leads to necrosis that extends into the intima of the, of the um, sinus. And then this results in fibrin, blood cells, and platelets from forming, which ultimately forms a mural thrombus which then becomes infected and enlarges and ultimately occludes the blood flow through the sinus. And that, that thrombus can propagate in either direction uh, and extend into the transverse sinus. And in really bad cases, it can actually progress to obstruct the superior sagittal sinus or the cavernous sinus, uh, in which case patients get severe cerebral edema uh, from increased intracranial pressure. And this can carry a very high mortality rate. 
the infected clot is also uh, at risk for showering the bloodstream uh, with, uh, with bacteria, which gives rise to signs and symptoms of septicemia and the uh, picket fence fever, which we mentioned. And rarely get these septic emboli in the lungs as well. But uh, I got to say today in the modern antibiotic era, this classic picket fence fever is really uncommon. And patients more commonly present with diplopia or a severe worsening headache or other focal neurologic uh, deficits due to increased intracranial pressure uh, that result from the decreased venous drainage to that sinus. I do think it's important to remember that patients with lateral sinus thrombosis frequently have an additional intracranial complication as well. So it's important to get neurosurgery uh, consultation if any other intracranial complications are, are noted. And before we move on to workup, I wanted to talk about the differential diagnosis. It sounds like this is an easily identified disease process, but I'm sure there are other things that you have to consider when you see a kid maybe with a, um, an abscess high in the neck or what seems to be behind the ear. What else do you keep in the back of your mind on differential diagnosis when you're considering acute mastoiditis? So otitis externa can sometimes present with a postericular cellulitis over the mastoid process, and that can mimic a mastoiditis, especially since both conditions are painful and can be accompanied by hearing loss. Uh, but you can differentiate these on exam by applying traction to the pinna or pressure on the tragus. You know, patients with otitis externa will have excruciating pain with these maneuvers, unlike patients with mastoiditis. Plus, patients with otitis externa can have pain with chewing due to the proximity of the TMJ. Otitis externa patients also usually have a history of frequent swimming or recent ear cleaning or Q-tip use uh, that can tip you off as to the etiology. And in general, otitis externa patients just don't appear systemically ill uh, in contrast to patients with acute mastoiditis. Um, other things in the differential, you know, patients that come in with a subperiosteal abscess, uh, or what appears to be um, postricular swelling, concern for that, you know, may have something else, you know, cellulitis or a deep space neck infection, um, frunculosis. Uh, as I mentioned before, with kids, they can have a separative lymph node um, from the scalp, which causes postricular swelling. Uh, but, you know, these lymph nodes are well circumscribed, they're freely mobile, they don't displace the auricle in contrast to the postricular swelling seen with acute mastoiditis with a subperiosteal abscess. Uh, plus, in many of these differentials, the tympanic membrane is normal, and the auricle is not displaced. The postricular crease is preserved. And so uh, on, a, on a thorough exam, uh, many of these can be uh, ruled out. Uh, there's also other primary pathologic processes of the mastoid bone, um, such as tumor, histiocytosis, uh, granulomatosis with polyangitis, sarcoidosis, other entities um, that uh, can result in uh, a mastoiditis that's not necessarily due to uh, a acute or chronic uh, otitis media. But uh, surgical biopsy makes these diagnoses in uh, many of these cases. So when you see these patients, uh, we'll say in the scenario that you're that you see a patient in the ED, um, what's your initial workup? Do you obtain labs on these kids? I think a CBC um, and an ESR can be obtained just for baseline studies. The peripheral white blood cell count in children with acute mastoiditis can be normal, but it can also be elevated often with the left shift. The ESR or the CRP can be elevated, but again, these findings are not really specific uh, and not terribly helpful for making the diagnosis. And in the acute setting, is it worthwhile to get an audiogram? 
so it's always nice to have an audiogram. I think most of these kids we're seeing in the ED were getting an audiogram is not feasible. I think uh, more often we are getting uh, the audiogram post-operatively or after treatment just to uh, ensure that their hearing is back to normal and it helps us ensure resolution of the infection. Uh, but again, you know, a tuning fork examination in the, in the emergency department is is sufficient in, in most of these cases. And you've discussed CT and CT findings a little bit. Um, could you tell us what's your imaging of choice and, and what are you looking for uh, if it is a CT scan? Sure. So it is important to, to mention that imaging is not necessary to make the diagnosis of acute mastoiditis uh, in children with otherwise characteristic clinical findings, but it can be helpful to make the diagnosis in in the absence of the classic findings. It's also helpful in determining the stage. You know, if this is uh, acute non-coalescent mastoiditis versus coalescent mastoiditis or those with infections or uh, infections extending outside of the temporal bone. So when I think about getting imaging, I am uh, thinking about getting it for any clinical findings suggestive of an extracranial complication. So patients with a postricular mass, neck mass, retroorbital pain, uh, any patient with intracranial complications, such as meningeal signs, cranial nerve deficits, altered level of consciousness, other focal neurologic deficits. And you know, if the patient appears severely ill or have a, has a toxic appearance, I'll be getting uh, get imaging for that too. Again, CT scan. And then lastly, uh, if I've treated the patient for 24 to 48 hours with conventional therapy, uh, usually IV antibiotics, and it's just not responding, then I'll typically get imaging as well. But the CT temporal bone uh, with contrast is the first thing that I'll get. And it's usually, uh, again, I'm looking for evidence of coalescence. I'm looking for any bone erosion at the perimeter of the temporal bone to see if any other airspaces are implicated. I'm looking for the loss of the bony septae definition, destruction of the mastoid cortex, any enhancement um, around the area of the abscess formation, and uh, evidence of intracranial complications. Now, if I am concerned for intracranial complications, I'll also consider getting an MRI because this tends to have greater sensitivity uh, compared to CT, particularly for extraaxial fluid collections or associated vascular problems. And do you find that there's a role for lumbar puncture in these patients? Yes, that's a great question. For patients who have signs of meningeal irritation, such as nuclear rigidity, uh, uh, lumbar puncture is needed to confirm the diagnosis of meningitis. It is important to do a CT scan first to rule out increased intracranial pressure, um, which uh, if so, uh, LP is contraindicated because that can precipitate herniation. Uh, but if not, uh, LP can be done and the uh, cerebrospinal fluid uh, specimens can be sent for culture and susceptibility testing for um, culture-directed antibiotic therapy. Uh, blood cultures are also done, but uh, they're not always positive, but uh, they can be helpful as well. And next, moving on to treatment, um, I'll cut to the chase a bit and say... Uh, What's in the armamentarium for treatment is classically antibiotics, placing a PE tube, and performing uh, mastoidectomy. Can you tell us what your algorithm is for these treatment options? When do you consider just antibiotics, and when do you consider more surgical therapies? Right, so this is a, a loaded topic. There's a lot to unpack here. So treatment really depends on the stage of the infection or the structures that are involved. 
So medical therapy without surgery can be warranted initially, especially in uncomplicated cases of acute mastoiditis. But surgery is usually recommended if there's failure to improve a medical therapy or if there's development of complications, and certainly if there's presentations with intracranial complications. Uh, and as you mentioned, surgery can range from just a simple myringotomy with a tube insertion to uh, mastoidectomy uh, with intracranial decompression. So in terms of my algorithm, you know, for uncomplicated, non-coalescent mastoiditis, oftentimes antibiotics alone is sufficient. Again, this, these are uh, for patients with acute mastoiditis in the setting of an acute otitis media where they have otherwise uh, well uh, pneumatized um, temporal bones uh, with good vascularity where the antibiotics will be sufficient. In, in patients with the chronic otitis media with the sclerotic mastoids, uh, oftentimes antibiotics alone is not sufficient for these patients and, and, and surgery is more often warranted. Um, but I think for the focus of this discussion, we'll kind of focus more on uh, the acute otitis uh, media uh, patients. Uh, so the next in the algorithm would be patients that have coalescent mastoiditis. So it's it's uh, the, it's slightly more progressed, uh, but it's still within the, the the infection is still within the confines of the temporal bone. It's not causing severe complications such as facial paralysis or labyrinthitis, uh, and it has not extended past the uh, the confines of the temporal bone. So in those patients, uh, they can be treated either medically or surgically. Uh, there is some practice variation here. Uh, in practice, we typically treat the patients with IV antibiotics for the first 24 to 48 hours. And if there's failure to improve, a CT scan is done and a uh, cortical mastoidectomy with PE2 placement is performed. Um, but again, I think without question, uh, a cortical mastoid with PE2 placement in conjunction with the IV antibiotics uh, provides probably the uh, quickest and expeditious way to treat these patients, uh, especially uh, it's also cost-effective as well. And I think that especially in kids who are younger than two years old, is probably going to be the most conservative approach in terms of preventing any serious complication. Uh, but it is worth mentioning that mastoids in these kids shouldn't be taken uh, lightly. There's a significant amount of inflammation, granulation tissue, increased vascularity, all of which obscure the landmarks and increase the difficulty of the operation. And although it's controversial, it may really be important to remove all this granulation tissue when doing the mastoid uh, because uh, it can prevent recurrences uh, from due to infection or the osteitis from inflammation. And uh, some people even give steroids uh, for these patients as well. So next are patients with coalescent mastoiditis, which has then progressed to a subperiosteal abscess. Uh, in these patients, uh, they can be treated with a needle aspiration followed by uh, IV antibiotics and placement of a PE tube. And a cortical mastoidectomy uh, can also be considered in these patients, but uh, again, there's some practice variation with respect to uh, if the mastoid is always done. It is important to obtain specimens for anaerobic and aerobic culture in these patients. So for anything more complicated, including facial weakness or labyrinthitis, uh, there's a stronger indication to perform mastoidectomy, uh, along with a wide myringotomy or a PE2 placement, uh, plus systemic IV antibiotics. Uh, patients with facial weakness in the setting of acute mastoiditis, uh, decompressing the facial nerve is not usually necessary. And in patients with meningitis, IV antibiotics is really the primary treatment. Uh, doing a wide myringotomy with or without placement of the tube is also helpful for uh, quickly evacuating the pus, but since meningitis occurs via hematogenous spread in the setting of acute otitis media or separative labyrinthitis, the mastoidectomy is not uh, necessarily going to be adding benefit 
uh, unless there's complications as well. Now, in patients with lateral sinus thrombosis, uh, mastoidectomy and antibiotics are well-established treatments. In patients with lateral sinus thrombosis, I usually decompress the entire sigmoid, uh, similar to what I would do for a translab. And oftentimes, the pressure within the sinus is so high that the infection will actually uh, cause the sinus to explode, even j just as you're decompressing the sinus. And you'd think after this happens, there'd be severe uh, bleeding that would ensue, but the sinus has been clotted off on either end, so you, there really isn't much bleeding uh, in these patients, and typically there's nothing more to do. They can place some gel foam over this, and uh, the sinus will eventually recanalize over time. Uh, there's some controversy regarding uh, the use of anticoagulation in patients with uh, lateral sinus thrombosis. Uh, there's been numerous studies, though, that have shown that the clot resolves uh, and the sigmoid sinus recanalizes over time despite the use of anticoagulation. So um, I use anticoagulation um, if uh, I were to observe the clot to extend into the transverse sinus or cavernous sinus, basically that those, those uh, more grave cases um, where I'm more worried about cerebral edema from vascular congestion. Uh, lastly, patients with subdural empyema or an epidural abscess or a brain abscess, uh, IV antibiotics should be uh, treated promptly. Neurosurgery uh, should be involved very quickly to evacuate the, the abscess within the first 24 hours because um, particularly with the brain abscesses, these are the ones with the highest mortality. And so if the brain abscess is adjacent to the mastoid cavity, we can approach this through the mastoid uh, by doing a mastoidectomy at the same time. Uh, otherwise, the neurosurgeons access the abscess through a separate surgical field, and uh, this is followed by the mastoidectomy immediately following, if possible. And when you're speaking to patients uh, prior to surgery, how do you counsel them on your outcomes or expectations, you know, what you're really hoping for uh, as a result of going to the operating room? I emphasize with parents that with proper treatment, uh, this, these infections can be resolved, and the goal of treatment is really to prevent the uh, the natural history and sequela of uh, of these untreated infections. As we discussed, all the potential uh, places that the infection can spread to. Um, you know, patients with with facial nerve weakness, as I mentioned, uh, over 95% of kids with facial weakness related to uh, acute arthritis media have resolution. Uh, so the outcomes are good. Uh, with, with proper management, uh, these patients can have complete resolution and restoration of, uh, of hearing um, so long as uh, they didn't succumb to um, suppurative labyrinthitis or meningitis, which may result in a, in a permanent hearing loss. And how do you follow up with these patients? It depends on the on the nature of their uh, clinical scenario, uh, but in general, if I've operated on the patient uh, and I've sent them, uh, they're, they're usually being sent home on uh, an oral course of antibiotics as well. I usually see them back in seven to ten days after surgery, uh, just to ensure that they're continuing to improve. Um, and uh, I follow them until resolution of their symptoms and their exam is clear. And that's where I'm getting the post-operative audiograms with the tympanogram uh, to ensure that there's been resolution of their symptoms. Well, Dr. Deep, this has been a great discussion of uh, acute mastoiditis. I'd next like to move on to our summary. But before I do, is there anything uh, you'd like to add? Uh, I think we, uh, we covered a lot. So next I'll move into our summary. Um, patients with acute mastoiditis present with symptoms of otorrhea, fever, postricular pain, 
and possible hearing loss, among other things, and more advanced presentations might even include Gradnigo's triad, which includes retroorbital pain, otorrhea, and sixth nerve palsy, though this is quite rare in this day and age. On physical exam, you might see tenderness over the mastoid process, a proptotic ear, a middle ear effusion or otorrhea, and it's also important to do a full neurologic exam, testing for extraocular movements and facial nerve paralysis. This is often a complication of acute otitis media, and the usual causative factors include strep pneumo, strep pyogenes, staph aureus, and haemophilus influenza. Workup in these scenarios should usually include a CBC and ESR, and you can obtain a CT scan to evaluate for bony destruction or other possible complications, as we discussed, including subperiosteal abscess, sinus thrombosis, or other abscesses to adjacent tissue, uh, and also involvement of facial nerve or the labyrinth. There is a range of treatment, which includes antibiotics, PE tube placement with antibiotics, and mastoidectomy with PE tube placement uh, with the addition of antibiotics. And the latter of these uh, is considered the most comprehensive treatment. And like we said, the treatment of lateral sinus thrombosis can be somewhat controversial and can include decompression and even anticoagulation. Dr. Deep, thanks again so much for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it, Jason. We'll now move on to the question asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds to give you time to think, and then give the answer. So the first question is, what is Gradnigo's triad? Gradnigo's triad is uh, now more historic uh, than actually relevant in terms of how patients present now that we have uh, antibiotics and patients are treated earlier. But Gradnigo's triad is classically described as retroorbital pain, otorrhea, and abducens nerve palsy. Next question, what are the most common pathogens implicated in acute otitis media and therefore acute mastoiditis? The pathogens most commonly implicated in this disease process are strep pneumo, strep pyogenes, Staph aureus and Haemophilus influenza. And as a reminder, uh, anaerobes or polymicrobial infection, as well as Pseudomonas, is more common in chronic infection, but can also be seen uh, in these patients. For our next question, define Cytelli's abscess, Luke's abscess, and Beasold's abscess. So we talked about the ways uh, this infection can extend. If it tracks along the sternocleidomastoid insertion point and under the sternocleidomastoid sheath, this is called a Beasold abscess. If it extends posteriorly to the occipital bone, this is a Cytelli abscess. And if it extends anteriorly under the temporalis muscle and along the zygoma, this is the Luke's abscess. And for our final question, describe the treatment possibilities for acute mastoiditis and when they would be appropriate given clinical situations. So overarchingly, the treatment options are antibiotics, PE2 placement, and mastoidectomy. Uh, if it's an uncomplicated mastoiditis without osteitis, antibiotics alone can most likely handle the situation. But if there are concerning features such as abscess, sepsis, or neurologic symptoms, PE2 placement with drainage of the abscess uh, can be helpful, 
But definitive treatment uh, or most comprehensive treatment is mastoidectomy with PE2 placement and antibiotics. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.